I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Otis Johnson Jr. He's executive director of the Johns Hopkins University Center for Safe and Healthy Schools. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. We've experienced one school year, a full school year, in the pandemic era now. Now we have a little over half the American people vaccinated, but many in the school setting and many children are not vaccinated. Um, What are you thinking about as we enter this fall in terms of the appropriate policy that will keep all schools safe, right? Every school is different, but as many schools as possible safe, uh, the faculty members, and of course, the children. Of course, primary on my mind is uh, the vaccine and the fact that vaccinations are really the only way that we end the pandemic and its impact on uh, school going population. And of course, we understand that Um, At present, the vaccine is not um, uh, authorized for use for all use. Those that are in U.S. high schools are largely eligible, and my hope is that we get as many vaccinated as soon as possible in order to stop the spread of COVID-19, but also just to bring back some of the normalcy um, that that we, we had in schools prior to the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, there were already issues concerning the safety and health of schools, Um, hunger, gun violence. Um, You know, they have, in some instances, been neglected or, you know, not as clearly understood. But how are you tracking it at the center in terms of what's happened over this past year and a half, two years in terms of the extent of, of uh, you know, poverty, hunger in schools, and, uh, and violence, gun violence specifically? That's a great question. And um, there are quite a, things that, quite a, a bit of, of things that we've done at the center uh, for city schools to um, stay on top of COVID and understand its impact, uh, not just in the U.S., but also globally with our trackers for school reopening uh, and closures. Um, But beyond that, we've been in touch with our local school systems to understand how they've been responding uh, to COVID, Uh, understanding better uh, the requirements for hybrid education, understanding what teachers need in order to feel safe, uh, uh, instructing kids, and then also what families and schools also need in order to feel safe and returning to school. In addition to this, we understand that there were lots of other um, school-related inequities, as you've mentioned, that predated COVID. And of course, a lot of these inequities have continued to become problems or continue to be problems. On top of that, um, we're trying to understand how COVID has impacted those issues. And here, we're largely in a black hole because our federal government along with state governments, were not effectively coordinating during the time that schools were shut down to understand what was happening with achievement uh, within schools and whether those 
opportunity gaps and those, those ways in which um, opportunities to learn were different across racial and ethnic and socioeconomic groups, have those inequities grown? Um, but unfortunately, we don't have the question, we don't have the answer to those questions because we largely do not collect data and we're not coordinated in our approach to understanding how um, 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 by the appropriate metrics and the conditions that kids were facing once they left school. So there's a lot to be learned here. Um, and we're at this moment where we're resuming education in many states and meaning in-person education, not hybrid education. Um, and yet we know so little about what happened during the year in which kids were largely kept away from schools. Well, that year likely will continue this fall. I mean, what, what is your assessment of um, at what point hybrid education or Zoom education, you know, basically remote learning should be instituted again? Because we, we do understand there are breakthrough infections. Um, even people who are vaccinated are not fully protected. There is currently the Delta variant, but there are, you know, various... Um, you know, next strains that we're concerned about. Um, it doesn't seem like, to your point, Professor, that there, there really is any kind of clear guidance at the beginning of this semester coming from mm -hmm. um, Secretary Cardona or the, the, the Department of Education on, you know, what, what is kind of the, uh, the general guidelines of you know, and, and, and do you think that that deference to state and local authorities is is the is appropriate? I mean, is it is it going to be yield the best outcome? A great question. And do have some guidance from the CDC from federal uh, sources. Um, and uh, in general, I agree that these these. Uh, uh, Procedures and protocols are important and should be followed. We should be wearing masks in schools. Um, students should be getting vaccinated if they're eligible. Um, schools should pursue appropriate ventilation strategies, meaning to make sure that when they can, to open the windows, to keep doors open, uh, to clean and install and HVAC systems, to use exhaust fans. Uh, within um, uh, kitchens and, and also even within um, uh, school buses to make sure that those windows are open to the extent that they can be. Um, but where I think we are not um, prepared, at least in terms of knowledge, um, really is about what about these safe distances we're supposed to maintain? It used to be six feet, then it went to three feet. Uh, within schools. Is that an appropriate social distance now, now that schools are at full capacity instead of at a reduced capacity as they were uh, in the past? Also, I'm really curious about mask mandates and how we can make sure kids, especially the very young kids that tend to be a little bit more active um, and less worried about their masks, uh, will keep those masks on and keep themselves safe. I'm concerned about ventilation because it's, it's hot some places, right? And um, later on, it's going to get cold. And kids 
um, are not going to learn uh, effectively and teachers are not going to teach as effectively if there are climate concerns. So um, there's a lot to be understood. There, there is no perfect solution to these things. So I, I understand that to the extent CDC guidance can be helpful, it, it nonetheless needs to be practical. And right now, there's really no assurance that kids will have um, an educational environment that was in any way similar to what happened before uh, the pandemic. What you're saying is must be alarming to school administrators and to teachers uh, that there really is not a way forward yet. I mean, there's not a conclusive way forward. And part of that is influenced by the fact that younger people are starting to show up at hospitals and needing to be hospitalized from this. Uh, by most accounts, that seems to be unvaccinated people. Uh, but it, the virus does seem to be attacking younger people now. Um, and, uh, and I think you're suggesting that the mandates are appropriate. Um, and even though, of course, they're not being practiced in places like Texas or, or Florida, other states too, but, but basically the, the, the mask mandate or vaccination mandate for faculty and staff are the policies that are going to be safest going forward. I agree. Um, listen, there is no replacement for the vaccine. Uh, as a matter of fact, a mask mandate really is just kicking the road, kicking the can down the road because ultimately um, the vaccine is the only way that we can um, uh, make sure all kids are safe within schools. And again, I understand that certain age groups cannot have the vaccine. They're not eligible for it. And the FDA is working on um, uh, a vaccine approving or identifying approving a, a vaccine that would be uh, appropriate for that age group. But um, we have a problem right now where um, high schools, for example, where most kids are eligible because they're usually 14 years old and above um, to get the vaccine. And some of those kids are not getting the vaccine. And at some point, um, the United States and its school systems, um, largely the municipalities and states in which schools um, really take their orders, will have to mandate COVID vaccines, much like we did back when smallpox was an issue at the turn of the 20th century. And later, more um, recent times when measles uh, was a concern in the 1970s, all 50 states have mandatory vaccine requirements as kids enter school. And that is the only way that we're going to keep kids safe is to mandate COVID vaccines as well. And right now we just lack the political will to have, have that uh, be a reality uh, in most states. I, I doubt that some states, Texas and Florida in particular, would ever mandate um, um, that their kids have a COVID vaccine. And in fact, I believe in the state of Texas just hours ago, the Supreme Court um, uh, there um, uh, decided that um, um, schools don't have the authority to mandate masks. So um, right now we're just at a, a political impasse that is really impacting public health and the ability of schools to keep kids safe.
there was an opportunity to think of the pandemic through the lens of like a healthcare reset, just as there is for, for educators now um, to think about a reset to improve the, the systems um, that suffered from grave inequities pre-pandemic. And, you know, I think that if you go to places where there are many unvaccinated um, or, you know, virtually half the population is, is unvaccinated and hospitals are buckling in the system once again, you know, I'm sure folks are wondering what, what did we experience over the last two years, going on two years that could lead us to this point of just repeating that blunder. And when we think of what can be improved in the long term in the education system, um, I, I wonder, you know, how we can contemplate that conversation, even if there's not a destination yet, because there are going to be closures and more shutdowns likely in the coming months uh, until there's a more fully vaccinated public. Um, so I, I understand this is with the caveat, and it's a major caveat, that we don't have a vision yet of a post-pandemic school. But if there are ways to reset through the infrastructure reg legislation or you know, other means of supporting, you mentioned ventilation, air quality, I think a lot about hunger, knowing that in many of our metropolises, young people suffer from, from you know, really a, a pandemic of hunger as much as there was a pandemic of COVID. Um, and, um, and so what, what can we do uh, to reset um, the social and, and uh, economic conditions of the American education system um, so that there is ground you know, sort of a, a newly entrenched foundation to build on in the, in the years ahead? That is a great question. And you are absolutely correct that um, prior to the pandemic, there were a lot of inequities that um, um, plagued schools and its ability to respond to students' health and well-being, uh, social emotional well-being, but also just uh, health. Uh, we only need to look to the Flint water crisis as an example of uh, school systems and, and the larger uh, uh, political environment failing them and keeping them safe while they're in school. Um, but yes, I think COVID does provide this moment where we, as you said, reset or perhaps reimagine what school can look like and not just you know, school the, uh, uh, meeting learning objectives, but a more equitable um, and health conscious um, system. And so to that, um, we have been working with Baltimore City Public Schools, for example, uh, to understand the lessons learned there. Um, so Baltimore City is not uh, trying to get through the pandemic, but it is trying to learn from the pandemic and what actually happened for kids. Uh, perhaps there were kids that actually excelled during the pandemic, and it would be good to know um, what were they facing when they were in school, and how did time away from school perhaps change that? And perhaps in from what happened, their experiences while they're away from school or away from school um, can be taken to scale and, and, and impact um, uh, kids more broadly. Um, likewise, in other uh, 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 cities, such as St. Louis, they actually uh, 
collaborated. They came together uh, because they understood that what was before them in terms of the pandemic was something that um, they could better um, uh, fight together than apart. So there they, they collectively negotiated with internet service providers so that um, kids, even if they had um, 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 bills or their service was disconnected because of payment, were able to have their internet service reestablished. Um, they also collectively got together um, um, a um, school lunch program and a meals program um, that not only served kids and made sure that they had proper nutrition because some of them only relied on schools for that, um, but also their families because um, you, you can't just feed children at home and leave the rest of the family um, hungry. So there are ways in which um, we've come together because of COVID that need to be sustained beyond COVID. Um, again, getting back to the, the hybrid learning and the techn technological divide, um, the differences in access to internet, um, that was something that K-12 schools were not, not really um, um, interested in solving, even if they were aware uh, of it, they didn't have much uh, leverage in, in uh, making sure kids had access to internet. But now there's been collective will and um, um, now a success in engaging internet service providers so that um, kids can have equitable access to really vital knowledge, knowledge that helps them complete schoolwork even when COVID is, is not um, an issue. So yes, there are things we can definitely learn in their ways and we can reimagine schooling uh, to make it more equitable for everyone, regardless of, you know, their socioeconomic background um, or city uh, and, and other aspects of inequality. Otis, you said earlier that the data, that the data really aren't available yet to understand the scope of impact on communities and educational communities during the pandemic. I, I was asking that in the context of uh, other health metrics, uh, specifically hunger um, and the well-being of students and tracking that. Uh, I was also asking in the context of, in the context of public safety and um, incidents of, of violence that in some communities had been on the rise during the pandemic. Um, but you identify the digital divide as central to this dilemma of inequality in the American education system. Uh, it's something we've talked about on the open mind actively for many years. Um, is there any data we can see on how many schools, you know, had full access to high-speed internet pre-pandemic and now have access as of fall of 2021? Uh, there, there are data out there. But those data are not lived experiences. And let me elaborate here. Uh, we can, at one point in time, ask a family whether they have access to the internet. Um, and we routinely do with uh, the longitudinal databases that we have at National Center for Education Statistics. Um, but we don't have data on how consistent is that access 
um, whether there are financial barriers to maintaining consistent access, whether kids have access to the internet in a, uh, a more user-friendly way. While I think everyone recognizes um, um, smartphones have internet access usually or data uh, service, um, they're not the best thing to, to, to use to complete homework. <laughs> and, and, you know, visually, they're, they're, they're probably going to have some um, inaccessibilities and incompatibilities with other software kids routinely use within school settings. So um, we need to understand the quality of access and whether it's conducive to homework completion and learning and exploration. Um, and I guarantee you, once we get into those data, you're gonna find uh, pretty huge and significant inequalities along social economic lines and racial lines that lead to then more pronounced differences in achievement. But will we find, Otis, improvement? I think that's the critical question because there have been stimulus um, investments over the course of this last year uh, were on the precipice of legislating infrastructure. Um, we may not have access to that data until 2022, until next year. But, but there was such a tale of two zip codes in the data that exists prior to the pandemic. Th this is one area of internet access that uh, by necessity should have improved. And if it hasn't, you know, we are in even deeper trouble than we could have imagined because this is the one area, maybe not hunger in terms of food access or security, maybe not uh, in terms of the criminal justice system and, um, you know, violence. But on this metric, and I know you're a co computer scientist, you're someone who gets deep in the, in the data by, by training, this is one metric that should have gone the right direction. I agree. And um, there definitely needs to be a focus on infrastructure investment. And yes, let's talk about that. Let's make sure the resources are there. Let's make sure that we're not just talking about access, but then also um, quality of access. Um, but then also there are some other things that we need to look to. Uh, for example, within St. Louis, where I was on, a school board. It became very clear that even when technology such as iPads and computers were extended to families for the purposes of hybrid education, you know, to give kids um, access to libraries and, and other resources that were vital to uh, completing the homework that their, their teachers were sending home, uh, some of the families did not take those iPads and those, those laptops because they were forced to sign an agreement saying that you're responsible for that iPad. And if they're damaged, then you would be responsible for replacing it. And of course, some families thinking, you know, my child is going to break this iPad. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Very young kids. Should we trust them with technology that, that we cannot work? Um, so even there, there was this affordability question that I think a lot of families had about uh, equipment that was loaned to them. Um, and also, we ran into the problem of, yes, the ISP was uh, providing uh, access to the internet, but they also put a cap on access. Uh, so think about it as your cell phone deciding to cap 
the number of hours or minutes you can have access to your data or what have you. Um, this was the case uh, with other internet service providers. And when you have an entire family that needs access, um, um, students often found that when they were ready to do their homework that their family had already used up all of the allowable minutes. So these are just other layers that, you know, not going quite far enough to ensure that kids had um, unabridged access to internet service. So I guess my response is that we have to have a commitment of will uh, in making sure that kids have what they need in order um, to be successful, but then also understand that it's a family unit. It's, we need a two-generational approach because we can't just serve kids while the rest of the family unit needs serving as well. Um, so this gets to your point about hunger. Yeah. About Let me just ask you, in the, in, this, in the seconds we have left, and, and this mm -hmm. is a question that deserves more than seconds, but when it comes to the, the community, the, the families that you're referring to, and the erosion of the village, um, is it, are you hopeful? Uh, or do you really feel over these last two years that the village, if you will, has been eroded? I think in services, we have done quite well in, in uh, responding to the pandemic. And I think, I think in those cities, um, their elected officials have by and large done all that they can do. Um, but elsewhere, I'm afraid that some cities have decided polit to politicize the pandemic in a way that has eroded a lot of those supports that uh, kids need to be successful in school. So unless we develop a national plan and a political will to keep that plan, we find that have and have nots uh, with respect to the pandemic and edge opportunity will continue. Otis Johnson of Johns Hopkins University, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.